0: Welcome
1: back for episode 49 of the Rugby Paper Podcast. This week, our central focus is the Rugby Players Association, as I'm joined by Head of RPA Gainline, Luke Chain, and recently elected General Secretary and former Northampton Saint Christian Day to discuss player welfare, the new waist-high tackle limit in amateur rugby, and much, much more. Brendan's back with me. We're also with the Rugby Players Association today, and that will be the central topic of this week's episode. I'm with the Head of the RPA Gainline, Luke Chain. How are you doing, Luke? Yeah, good thanks, Oliver. And recently appointed RPA General Secretary and former seller Northampton Saints Lock Christian Day. Congratulations, Christian. Thank you very much. So let's start with that. Um just this week you've been elected general secretary for the RPA. It's a new role, isn't it?
0: Uh it's not new. It's it's new for me. Um it's very much kind of a trade union role. So you know, you see uh see Mick Lynch is the uh the general secretary, doing a lot of their time at the moment. But um no, it's nice to Elected effectively from our membership, and um, you know, to have a really st- strong mandate going forwards, that that we're going to represent our membership as well as we can.
1: So, what is the role? What do you want it to look like?
0: So, I am, I am now the the figurehead of the trade union. We have a, you know, we have a real strong team behind me at the RPA, and, it, and it's important to to say that this isn't just my agenda. It's it's primarily the agenda of our players' board. But look, I just, I think rugby has been through some really testing times in the last two years as has most of society and most uh most of business so nothing unusual there but I think we've got real opportunity now in the next 18 months to to kind of rebuild come back with a slightly different look a slightly different feel and and make sure that the players are at the core of that because at the end of the day players are what everyone wants to come and see everyone wants to hear from and and they should be valued as such
1: I'm slightly stepping on the toes of your candidacy here but you've mentioned the Past eighteen months that rugby has had, what makes you believe that you're the man to be able to take that rough eighteen months by the scruff of the neck and hopefully have a transformative next couple of years?
0: Why me? You know, I've got I I've, I've had a lot of experience in English rugby as a player. I played seventeen years. I was never the star of the show. I think it's fair to say, but I certainly played with a lot of um, a lot of fantastic players. Made a lot of fantastic relationships along the way. But whilst doing that, I was always. Very much player centric, and wanted to support my teammates, help my teammates. Served so time as, as chairman, of, uh, chairman as yes, chair of the players board, or vice chair of the players board. I've been at the RPA now for ten years, and um, for the last three or four years, primarily my job has been around player engagement, ensuring that the player's voice is heard, and to go through a democratic election, which I'm going to be frank with you, was not a pleasant experience. Um, to put my and manifesto my agenda on the table and then have it voted upon by more than 600 professional players there's a fair amount of screws <laughs> um you know it's not like it's not like I won a lottery to get the job so you know I feel like I've I've done my time in rugby but I'm just so excited to, to provide some leadership at this point in time like I said I think the next 18 months of rugby are going to be transformative I really do and I just hope and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that, that the players are at the front of the agenda.
1: Yeah. Well, huge congratulations again. For those that don't know, it's probably worth saying that other candidates included former Sense Jamie Roberts, former England fullback Mike Brown, uh, Matt Garvey, and former Queen's prop Mark Lambert. And so, yeah, huge credit to you for being elected and all the best with that role for the next 18 months. Something I wanted to talk about and is, at the time of recording, it's Friday, Jan 20th. This got announced yesterday by the RFU the introduction of waist high maximum tackles at amateur rugby. Brendan, I know you have some thoughts about it, so I'm going to pass the ball to you quickly and then maybe we could hear Luke and Christian's thoughts as well.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it came a little bit from the blue yesterday. I mean, we were aware that there had been a, a trial with the championship, which actually was abandoned because, uh, as I understand it, there were too many concussions or an increase in the number of concussions. So it came as a, a bolt from the blue. This is, of course, for the amateur grassroots game. So this, at the moment, is obviously not going to apply to the professional game. But you know, it can show how how the RFU are looking. I have my worries about it. You know, the, the old mantra when I was coach was, you know, you can't run without your legs. You go for the legs. You go for the ankles. You go for the knees. You never go higher than the waist, which is fine in theory, absolutely fine in theory, textbook. And when you're young and fit and flexible it's a it's a very effective way of bringing somebody down, but it's also a very effective way of getting injured. And I can certainly remember a couple of broken noses, lost teeth, a couple of concussions from making those sort of tackles. So I'm not quite sure of the logic of impl- in, imposing this on a on, on the amateur game, where we're trying to boost playing figures, uh, numbers. And so you've got a second and third 15, guys 30, 35, 40, not in the peak of fitness, but still participating in the game, enjoying their game, are suddenly going to have to be making these textbook tackles, which are quite dynamic. You've got to get low. You've got to drive in. You've got to be flexible. You've got to be fit. And I can just see that, seeing a fall off in numbers. And also for referees, and again, we're trying to improve the numbers of referees at grassroots level. It's going to be very difficult to ref because, again, you're going to have the problem of, of the, tackle, of, of the tackle height riding up as you go in for the tackle. You're going to have runners who aren't running upright in the classical style. They're bent. They're, they're looking to take contact. So they're going to be folded over. So that makes it even more difficult to judge where the contact point, the fair contact point was. So that's going to be a problem. And my final thought was, where are we now then? Because I understand this was also, also going to go to age group schools rugby. If, you've got, if you're an outstanding young 16, 17-year-old looking to play professional, you're bought up on this tackling below the waist uh, regime, and suddenly, as an 18-year-old um, sale or whatever, you're suddenly playing big boys rugby and having to uh, you know, adapt to that. So there's a lot going on there. I mean, I think everybody agrees that, uh, that every effort must be made to bring tackle heights down. I actually think it's working. I think from six, seven years ago, in a a premiership match you'd have way more high tackles now you are getting red cards and sending offs but that's because they've been pleased absolutely ruthlessly um so i think it is coming down i just wonder if perhaps a little bit more patience but anyway that's my view on on the overall picture i'll be interested to hear what the guys have got to say
0: i think you should go to luke cheney because um not sure if you guys are aware, he's actually captained England death and uh, and played to a very high amateur standard. So he's you know he's a bit of an expert in this, and I'd be interested to hear what he says, and then I'll uh, I'll follow up.
3: Cheers, Daisy. I think you've uh, you've put me up put my tyres up a bit too much there, but I'd probably <laughs> be in the same sort of line of thinking as as Brendan. I think look from a from a standpoint of safety, the game is absolutely going to be doing everything it possibly can to make it safer. And I think there's a, there's a responsibility of everybody from the gov- you know, governance of the game right the way to the players making a tackle to try and make the game safer. Is this the right way to go about it? I'm sure we'll find out. I think the, the response over the course of the last 24 hours has you know, been pretty pretty negative. Uh, hasn't, or hasn't certainly hasn't been that positive for sure uh, in terms of how this is going to affect the, the, the amateur game, and I think Brendan, you're, you're touching upon the points of yeah, second, second teams, third teams as well having to kind of change the habits of a lifetime. There's arguments for you know for tackles above the waist to still be quite safe, We're trying to dislodge the ball, We're trying to stay away from the head, and kind of reduce head contact. So you know, I think it's a difficult thing to do. Trying to trying to make the game safer is not a simple thing to do. But I think you're right. I think over the course of particularly the last decade, that's something we have seen just taking place. I think the other consideration is that off the back of COVID, you know, one of the biggest concerns, particularly in the amateur game, is participation levels uh, have possibly dropped. Um, there's lots of lots of talk online and lots of talk kind of in circles that I've been within with the last 24 hours around this possibly having an adverse effect on that, which I hope isn't the case. But we'll wait and see what happens. Really.
0: So. You know, from my perspective, you know, we, we represent professional players. And, and at the moment, this is this is in the amateur game. So all I would say is, you know, we are a representative body. Any kind of move for this to go into the professional game, I would hope that there'd be a really strong consultation with players. Um, we've seen numerous uh, professional players speak up and, and say, you know, that they're, they're concerned about this. And I think that's natural. You know, we're changing a game that's, existed for 200 years and and we're, we're making some quite dramatic change at the amateur level now what I would say is I think the the heart of the change it, it's correct we we want the game to be as safe as it can be and we know that the the most dangerous tackle in professional game is head on head is is by far the most dangerous and that's that's where this change has come from I guess all I would say is I hope I actually sit on a on a body of of referees who will discuss this is how are they going to referee it and I just really hope that we use common sense I think if if we have an upright runner then then I hope that they're going to be strict and say it's a waist-high tackle but at the same time you know there's countless instances in rugby where as we say it's a quick dynamic game and there's going to be instances where I think it'll be practically impossible to to tackle around the waist and, and I just hope that we have some common sense there and we keep the game as it is, which is a flowing and exciting game, we don't want to, we don't want to penalty every other play because um, because we haven't tackled low enough. So that that would be my only uh, say. In terms of our membership, we we will have some players who cross over. We will have some players, particularly younger players, who probably go on loan down to National One, National Two, and they will have to effectively jump between two sets of rules, and that that will be a challenge for them. And I, again, all I will say is I hope I hope first and foremost that the the kind of the education piece is there and also and something that we're going to be saying going forward is we always want to try and be evidence-based so i'm sure that studies will go on and we're going to keep a close eye on this and and if it doesn't work then then we need to to rethink
1: i'm going to put all of you on the spot here there's currently a change.org petition to reverse the rfu mandate brendan will you be signing that petition
2: i would sign it um and i don't want to be i don't want to be actually too knocking on the rfu here because something you know obviously has to be done and they are making you know proactive steps i'm not sure this is the right one i think it needs a little bit of a, a, a foot on the ball moment here just to stop to think what they consider what they're doing and as i said, i would emphasize at the professional level which gets replicated down down the levels there's no doubt that it's decreasing head high tackle is decreasing and i say do not be fogged off by the number of red cards which is Probably the same, if not more. That is because of expert policing now in the main by refs. So I would sign it, but I wouldn't dismiss ideas of this. But let's have a let's put the foot on the ball for a season and think if we really want to go this route.
1: Luke, do you feel the goal with this primarily is to increase safety or increase participation?
3: I think first and foremost, safety, right? Because we're, we're talking about players playing the game now. But when you talk about participation, you're also kind of considering the fact that we've got. Players that have yet to pick up a pick up a, a ball. You know, I've got a two-year-old son myself, so in the next couple of years, he's going to be you know choosing which sports he wishes to play, and hopefully, he gets the opportunity to to play all of them and, and choose the one that that he wants uh, he wants to play on a more longer-term basis. Would I like him to play rugby? Absolutely, because it's given me you know a hell of a lot of positive opportunities in my lifetime, not not least a career at the moment. But um, you know, ultimately, do I want it to be as safe as possible for him? No question. And I think that's, you know, I think as Brendan's talk, talked about, at the very heart of this is, is about making the game safer. But it isn't a simple, straightforward process. You know, you don't just do one thing. The game isn't, you know, there's so many different things that can happen in an 80 minute game of rugby. Um, and one one thing particularly isn't going to wholeheartedly make the game safer. It's going to be an amalgamation of things. Um, so I think it's possibly a bit of both. but But first and foremost, it has to be about making the game safer. And in turn, then hopefully the the participations won't drop and, and actually they'll they'll, they'll rise, uh, and parents of, of young people will be more than happy for that for their children to be to be playing this fantastic game.
1: I'm going to guess that you won't be signing the petition.
3: Uh, no, I think. Look, for me, I, I need to. This this last 24 hours alone has been a busy one for us in 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 our RPA world. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I know. I, I'm I'm seeing both sides of the coin. I think that's uh, you know, both sides of the argument, which I think is always important to do when you make an informed decision. You need to look, look at everything, really. But, yeah, it's not something that's, that's not the tip of my uh, tip of my agenda at the moment to, to be signing any sort of petitions either way.
1: I want to transfer and slide quite nicely into player welfare. And I know the RPA released a statement last year saying they want, wanted to get the number of games down to 30 uh, for professional players. Christian, why is 30 the magic number?
0: Yeah, so that came out of um, some studies that have gone on. So, if you there's a England leads the world in this. So there's a an acronym of PRISP. It's basically an injury study for the professional game. So we we keep a record of all injuries that occur and how long it takes to recover, and, and with the aim of of producing player player welfare, player safety. So from from that, many many years ago, there was um, a study done out at Bath University, which basically set the game limits as they were, which were. 30 full games or, or 35 game involvements. And, and it's done on kind of a bell curve. You play too few games, you're at a higher risk of injury. And if you play too many games, you're at a higher risk of injury. And there's a real middle middle to that curve where players generally, if they, they're playing that number of games, experience fewer injuries. Makes, common, makes perfect sense. And, and what we did last year was we actually paid um, a PhD student at Bath University to run the same study, but with all the updated figures. So rather than being out of date, we want our current members to have exactly the same protections put to them. And what that study showed was that actually the, the number of games had, had actually reduced and it was rather than being full games, it actually came down to 30 involvements of any kind. So if you think it's very hard to distinguish between a tight head prop who plays 50 minutes and a winger who plays 80 minutes every week, they go through very different different loads, different experiences. And and what we found from the study was that it doesn't really matter how many minutes you play in the game. You're going through the training in the week, going through the stress of the game and then, and then taking part. And then 30 is that number where you play more than 30 games a year, you are at an increased injury risk. And, and at the end of the day, one of our really key goals for players is that they should have the longest career they can have. They can have the longest career they want to have. And that's part of it.
1: In terms of interventions, if players are playing too much, will they voice those concerns to you, or will you be forced to in- intervene if you feel that a player is simply doing too much?
0: So, as part of my former job remit, you know that that was one of my things. It was was to keep an eye on on match numbers, etc. And, and much like the tackle height study, you know we want players to be informed and to be able to make a choice. So, you know, if we inform our members that going past 30 games, that injury risk goes up and they're informed. But also we've got to realise that, you know, coaches don't want their players injured. They want to have the the most up-to-date sports science available at their fingertips. And ultimately it's for the game itself to determine how many games a year are scheduled and how do we keep our players as safe as possible. So it's a very difficult choice to make. I mean, we saw Freddie Stewart was one last year who went past the limit. If anyone... Is the correct profile of a player to challenge those limits? It probably is a 21 year old fullback who who probably doesn't experience quite as much contact as a 28 year old back row. But that isn't to say we're happy about that. And and ultimately, we want to keep players as safe as possible. So so you know we, we now have that study, we have that science, and and that has gone to the game, and it needs to to play a role in in the game going forward.
1: That's really interesting. And I guess Luke, I'll come to you about this people have noticed, or the world has noticed, rather, a a juggle between physical welfare and mental welfare between the players um, in the past few years. And I wondered, in your time with the RPA, how you've noticed that dichotomy has erred back and forth between the two. Obviously, they're very much not mutually exclusive. But describe the the ability to juggle the two that the RPA has to harness when dealing, uh, not dealing with its players, but when interacting with its players.
3: Well, I think, you know first and foremost Lee, you're looking at a, a match day squad who will possibly include less than half of the overall squad when it comes to players so when you talk about mental welfare you're you're also talking about not necessarily game impacts but the the non-game impacts the deselection the impact of deselection and, and not being picked so it isn't a straightforward lineal kind of conversation that you're talking about in that sense but yeah 100 percent the two are intertwined uh, and the the number and, and level of games that that the players are playing now is absolutely a you know, um, a point in which we need to be we need to be very kind of forthcoming around what's best for for players, um, both from a physical and a mental perspective. But I don't think that that our sport alone is alone in that. You'll see the PFA and, and and many football bodies talking around the the nature of the the sporting calendar, particularly off the back of the World Cup uh, and you know the, the the Christmas Premier League kind of schedule. Let um, I me mean, look at the Championship. I'm digressing a little bit now, but I've, I've got to take the opportunity to talk about the fact that I'm a Coventry City fan and. The periods over the course of November, December, January, they were playing kind of almost three times a week. You know, so I think from 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 our point of view, our, our role in in within professional rugby is to look after the, the, the welfare and the well being of our players. Um and everything's taken into account. Um but yeah I don't think it's straight you play a certain amount of games and therefore that you know, that the result of that is that your mental welfare is affected as X. There's there's lots of things going on. Um, We're we're talking about a squad in in many ways that's possibly getting bigger due to the nature of how things have have worked with salary caps, a lot lot more younger players. So there's a lot more players that are actually not playing as much as what perhaps we'd have liked them to maybe even and and what they were perhaps a couple of years ago as well. Do you feel then... Oh, sorry, go on. I
0: was just going to say, I think this is vital. And I think we're, as the game is becoming more and more professional and, and we are a young professional sport, we shouldn't forget that. I think the mental side of things is becoming more and more valuable. And we need to ensure that we do more and more work in this area to protect players. So, you know, there's a there's a really good champion of I it. Mean, Alex Sanderson at sale puts huge importance on it. Huge importance. It's it's one of those things you can't really see or measure, but you need the protections there. That's something we we give the players in, in terms of confidential counseling should they need it. And the numbers that use that each year always shock me. Um, that's why we need the managers in the clubs, Luke is one of them, who are there as that independent sounding board but, but as I said, a lot of clubs are seeing a performance game, you know, if you can be ahead of the curve here, you can get significant performance gain. and yeah I think it will continue to become more and more important with time
3: I think just on top of that, Christian, when we talk about kind of identity and athletic identity, that's one of the things that a lot of athletes struggle with when they when they leave their sport. Rugby players are no different. They've been used to being a rugby player, and life as a as a professional athlete, life as a professional rugby player, is very short term. We play on Sunday, we've got then Monday, we follow into the rest of the week, we recover, we train, play again on Saturday, and the you look at kind of uh, how that weekend goes away from sporting life but family life in terms of kind of well-being can very much depend upon what the score is at five o'clock on a saturday afternoon now now for me apart from being a Coventry fan i'm going to mention that again apart from you know for, for normal normal people your life is pretty kind of constant in terms of the ups and downs and maybe you'll have some big peaks and big troughs with you know with significant events but from a professional athlete's perspective you win you lose you win you lose you know and that and that's something that we we're really trying to build through the through the game line program working with players working with the clubs to, to build opportunities for players to add to their identity more than just being a rugby player because if there is more to them than just being a rugby player there's more that they can associate themselves with than the result at five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon um, whether that's looking at you know opportunities to create businesses or it might be to you know to, to network work experience uh, do some degrees or some education alongside being you know, being a rugby player that's why it's so important in my opinion, anyway, that, that we don't just kind of solely see these players as rugby players. There are a lot more than that. Um, and and I suppose the the better we can understand that, the more we can facilitate these opportunities, the better we're going to have, the, the better the landscape will be for these players moving forward.
1: One dimension of this that really interests me is rugby compared to other sports. And I'm sure you men know, know this, but across all elite sport, one in three athletes will experience anxiety or depression um, at some point in their career. And mental vulnerability, because of the nature of rugby, isn't necessarily something that is inextricably tied to it. Going into battle, team talks, that side of things, obviously, kind of eliminate that mental vulnerability. Do you think rugby is then hampered in that sense by that mindset in a way? And also, obviously, a massive degree of confidentiality here. But from what you've seen, and this is a question to either Luke or Christian, whoever feels better fit to answer it. Is there that number of people affected by it?
0: I would not want to assign a number to it at all. As Luke said, we have such a diverse membership of players in the Premiership, in the women's game. The women's game is a really interesting space in terms of... I absolutely love working with the Red Roses. They are an amazing group. But they are very, very different to the men's players. Very, very different. And it's important as the women's game grows, we recognise that. And they need to be treated as, as, as much as... They're rugby players. that you know they're they're a different group to our men's members. I mean, I, I've seen the challenges. Now. I've I've lost uh, I've lost friends and former teammates uh, to suicide, and um, some of the protections that exist now did not exist when I started playing. So that's that's to the credit of the game that we're building those in and they're starting to exist. One of the big challenges for me that I can speak about is retirement because, like Luke says, as much as you go through the ups and peaks and troughs. You do that as a team and as a squad. Seldom do you do that alone. Why would you know? Injury is a time where you might do it alone, or, or losing selection. But mostly as a squad. And when you retire, you lose that. And that's that is difficult. That is difficult not to have that that group support. And again, it's work we're trying to do more with now in terms of a, a retired player network and trying to make sure that we don't, you know, players don't just leave the game and and leave behind that that support network that they
1: always had. Brendan, in your time in rugby, how have you noticed the mental health discussion in general? Because actually I think we've only really spoken about it probably in that retirement episode we had with Tony Underwood and Phil DeGland. Mm-hmm. Other than that, we haven't, not with you on air anyway, with a few of the current players and the younger guys. Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, uh, it's entirely different. It's out there in the open now. I mean, it was just not spoken about. And, and rugby, it was almost a badge of honour that rugby didn't talk about it because you know, rugby guys were strong physically and mentally, and then they they didn't suffer from this, or you know, so the narrative went. And of course, that that was nonsense. they elite sportsmen, and and a high percentage of elite sportsmen have have these insecurities. Uh, it's, it comes with the territory. So I, I was very interested there. to Hear what Christian said. Yes, you have the mental health difficulties in your playing days, and but you're absolutely right. You have the backup of the team, uh, the club. It's always struck me that it must be the loneliest place in the world if you retire the first Saturday of the next season. I mean, you know, what do you do with yourself? Um, so, if you're then encountering difficulties as well, missing the sport, I can imagine that mental health difficulties can pile upon each other soon up, you know, very soon after retirement, uh, unless you've got something in place or, you know, you've thought it through about what you're going to do uh, in retirement. So, I mean, it's great. It's all out there now, or just about all out there. It took a time with rugby because it was that sort of inner pride not to discuss it, but that, that, was, that was a nonsense. And, and you know, I'm glad that it's a different sort of environment now.
1: Christian, when Brendan <laughs> mentioned that first Saturday after retirement, there was an expression on your face. Do you remember your first Saturday after retirement?
0: No, I don't. It's, it's, it's strange because it, retirement's happened in different ways. The, the hardest one must be if you're a 25-year-old player and, and injury ends it up. Because the next Saturday might just be next Saturday uh, and you will sit there with with a, a knowledge that your knee or your shoulder or, or whatever bit of you just won't let you do it anymore. And that must be so brutal. You know, for me, I was very, very lucky. I played 17 years. I chose the year I finished and it was all part of the plan. And what I would say now is I, I really am a fan of rugby now, whereas when I was a player, I probably wasn't because... I didn't want to watch a game. I wasn't playing in because that was work. I, I wouldn't watch the game and enjoy it. I'd be watching it thinking, oh, they do that line-out in this area of the field. Oh, that player's got this strength or this weakness. Now I just love watching a game because I love watching rugby. And I now watch pretty much every game on TV I can. So shows you how that dynamic changes. I do think some clubs do it well. Um, you know, I need to say it. Wasps had a fantastic past player group. And they're very strong in that area. Northampton Saints have just launched one this year, and it's it's actually amazing networking with you know guys who played fifty years ago, and 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 then me who's just retired. So it's uh, yeah, I think that past player base is important, and and it certainly can be a challenge, particularly if you feel like you lost the identity and you didn't want to. That that must be very very tough. I was well, going
3: to say that, that feeds in again to the point I just made around around you know sport is is unpredictable um, and that identity piece is that's why it's so important because without sounding like a broken record for for, for players particularly you know you don't know when it's going to happen when it's going to win. We would love all of our players to have the, the length of career that someone like a christian did, and I still don't believe he wasn't a fan. I think he was watching YouTube clips of lineouts for <laughs> pure enjoyment when he was playing uh, you know but in that sense like christine saying he you know he was uh, was very fortunate to have had the the length of career that he had. And, <laughs> to choose to hang his boots up at the time that he wished to do so. But also going back to that point, one of the things that I suppose we we haven't mentioned in that conversation is that Christian, as a, p- a particular example, was very, very proactive with, with, with recognizing that was a lot more to life than than being a professional rugby player. And so the ability for him then to to go from being a professional rugby player to not being a professional rugby player is possibly a little bit different to, to, to an example that he just mentioned there when it's kind of through injury at one point or another. So, look, the, the point I'm trying to make is, is is tell them do we have any kind of professional players that are, are playing well into their 40s? Um, so we know at some point for, for the majority of players that are playing, our members that are playing today, within the next 20 years or so, they will have a final day as a professional player. And the more that they can do, the more that they can prepare for that, emotionally, but, but importantly, through their network, through exploring what their interests are outside of being a rugby player, um, hopefully, that the better that transition is, is
1: going to be for them. What does the RPA offer in that department in terms of, yeah, foregrounding for your potential retirement?
3: Well, that that is exactly what our 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 gainline program is is uh, is in place to do. And, and look, preparing for life after rugby is, is a big part of it. It's not the only part of it. There's lots of lots of evidence, lots of research to to suggest that actually players exploring opportunities away from from playing will actually help their playing careers now which is a, you know, the performance benefit side of, of what the line programme and the work that our incredible development managers that work in at the clubs with the players do, it's hugely important. But yeah, absolutely. From I think the big thing is it's built around, um, you know, collective, but importantly, it's built around the individual needs of each of the players. We want the players to explore what's important to them, what their interests are. And for some players, particularly now the game is as professional as it, as it is and it has been for the last 20 years or so, we know that players will come from school to... Uh, straight to to professional sport. And and for some of them, they might not know, unless they make the effort to step outside of that bubble, they might not know anything different until the day that they do retire. So we want them to explore their interests. We want them to explore what they want. It's not just the same sort of pathway for everybody. You go from, you do a degree because that's, you know, that's what you must be doing a degree at at the age of 18, 19, 20. For some players, that's not going to be relevant. Um, And absolutely, we don't want to shoehorn pigeonhole players into doing it or going to university if that's not what their interests are you know the, again the big thing is, is exploration we want we want the players to understand more about themselves we want for them to understand what their values are what's important to them as people and then get the opportunity to go and go and try things you know we've got a, a commercial partner with the we've got some fantastic commercial partners as well that, that we can we can utilize and, and and players are able to utilize from a work experience perspective. As I said earlier, we've got a, you know a bit, an increasing kind of uh, level of entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurship skills players. Lots of brilliant businesses that, that players are now starting that, that we can kind of support and uh, and help to help to develop those as well. But I think it, ultimately it comes back to trying to learn a little bit more and explore a little bit more about themselves and, and what interests them. Uh, and then the rest, we can't guarantee what's going to happen next year or in five years or in ten years time. But what we can look to try and do is is make the players as best possibly prepared for what comes to tomorrow as, as
0: we possibly can. Just to provide some context there, the RPA supplies a, an independent development manager to every single Premiership club, to the Red Roses and to the Great Britain Sevens team. So that that independent development manager is there purely as a sounding board, as a development aid to the players. They, they can choose to engage or not. We, we obviously are proactive in that department, but in the day, the responsibility lies with the players. The resource is there. And what an 18-year-old player wants compared to what a 30-year-old player wants would be very different, but that's why we employ skilled people in that regard. We also supply education grants for players so they can apply for education. That's the path. Um, and as Luke said, it's becoming, you know, more and more players are starting to do something outside of rugby. That that entrepreneurship is quite of interest to players, and I think it's brilliant you know if i if I look back the one thing I wish I'd done was start a small business because as much as it might not have uh, paid for my retirement, I'd have learned so much in terms of accounts and marketing and how to write emails how to use excel and that's that's one thing I wish i'd done and and there's so many examples that we could give you of players around the premiership doing that right now,
1: yeah, we've had a few on this podcast. the one that stands out to me is Jake Walmore's gin business <laughs> yeah xV gins there we go and Jake will thank you for that. <laughs> Okay, as interesting as this discussion is, I think we'll have to move on due to time. Christian, you know about the quickfire 15 questions that I'm going to be asking you? I don't, but go for it. Oh, okay. Well, there's a quickfire. <laughs> Luke, I'm sorry not to be um, asking you as well, but for time reasons, I don't think we have time it's, to ask. It's fine,
3: as long as Christian names me in the fifteen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so basically, it's 15 quickfire questions, all sort of semi-rugby related so when you're ready we'll get is this, going.
0: Is this like general knowledge or No,
1: oh no 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 hell no no no. <laughs>
0: okay,
1: it's it's, a, it's about you specifically like your well rugby first memory. one is nickname best rugby memory that sort of stuff.
0: Okay, go.
1: Right, nickname. Daisy. Like the flower. Just like the flower. Best rugby memory.
0: Oof. Uh probably lifting the premiership with Saints.
1: Most embarrassing rugby memory.
0: Um, oh god. Too many. Uh, probably, probably in my early days, the young player at Sale, I, um, I made a bit of a hash of a kickoff, which uh, ended up hitting me on the head, and it kind of got very much magnified in a player meeting by, uh, okay. by a cool coach. So that that'll probably the one.
1: At least it wasn't a knock-on. Pre-game <laughs> tune.
0: Kasabian, underdog.
1: Nice. Post-game meal.
0: Post-game, we used to have an amazing chef at Northampton Saints who just did incredible food uh, called Gavin Austin. And he used to do things like ribs and wings and all sorts. He was awesome.
1: Best player you've played
0: against? Always had a lot of respect for George Cruz. Really, really difficult guy to play against. Did his work, smart, worked really hard. was My kind of player.
1: How was your back backheel conversion compared to his?
0: I don't think I've ever done one of those.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Best player you've played with?
0: Got a lot far too many i did my 15 for the paper recently and i couldn't believe some of the players on it the most talented player i played with was probably sergio parise he he could literally play any position on the field genuinely incredibly skillful powerful athlete and a mindset with it
1: favorite player right now
0: oh that's tough i'm gonna say owen farrell that's gonna divide opinion isn't it Um, He's again much like the respect I've got for George Cruz. You you can't underestimate what he does on the pitch, but as well he's a leader off it. And he's uh he's of good northern stock, just like me.
1: I take it you think he should have held on to the England captaincy then.
0: Well, three coaches have given it him now, says something, I think.
1: Yeah. Rugby idol.
0: Growing up was Joan Alomi. Jonah Lomi rugby. Yeah, he was he was the first megastar of the game, I think.
1: Favourite stadium?
0: Franklin's Gardens.
1: Favourite gym exercise.
0: <laughs> 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 putting the music on. <laughs>
1: Occupation if rugby didn't exist.
0: I'm actually a I'm a qualified engineer and I've also got an MBA, so something along those lines. Um if if I hadn't played rugby, I'd have probably been working in the city.
1: Superstitions. Don't have any. Rugby law, you would change.
0: Rugby law. I'm going to get, we're going to get rid of the crop roll sooner or later.
1: And lastly, best thing about working in rugby:
0: uh, the people you meet. Lots of good people. Lots of good people in rugby.
1: That's fifteen questions done. Thank you for doing that, Christian. I didn't know you were a qualified engineer. That's very cool. When did you get that qualification?
0: Uh, I studied for four years at Manchester University uh, when I was eighteen to twenty-two. Years. Oh, I
1: see. Okay.
0: Yeah, so I've got a master's in material science as well.
1: That's very, very cool. Right, awesome. Thank you for doing that and sorry to put you on the spot a little bit.
3: (laughs) I mentioned MasterChef there as well, (laughs) Christian.
1: Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Do very well. Okay, now we've got about 20 minutes left just under. Um, I want to talk about Worcester and Wasps. Basically, look, there's no real way to introduce it except what were your guys' roles there? What was the RPA? You know, were alarm bells ringing from way earlier than they were Publicly, for example,
0: yeah, maybe maybe if I frame this, and then Luke Luke was so heavily involved with this and deserves so much credit. So I'm going to let him take over at some point. But two horrible <laughs> holes that have happened to to clubs and our members and and employees and, and everyone connected with those clubs. And and first and foremost, that human element of this is often and I've almost forgotten about. Like you talk about the clubs disappearing, and you know we're, we're going to get buyers to re- resurrect them. And what division are they going to be in? You know, we we ultimately were dealing with over 100 players who lost their job overnight, and it was brutal. We've already talked about how tough it is for players if they lose everything at once. So two very, two very different circumstances. Worcester was a club that developed over time. We knew there were issues. We were offering support along the way, but it still wasn't an easy thing when it eventually got there. Wasps was very different. Wasps was very, very fast. It came right on the back of Worcester, and almost doubling that up. So we, we almost had had kind of finished that initial phase of support at Worcester and then Wasps arrived, bang, and, and Luke is still supporting players now from that. So two terrible things to happen. And if, if we learn anything else, it's that we can't allow those that to happen again. We we know that COVID caused major issues. We know that finances were stretched, but two two dreadful, dreadful things that happened and and the support given was was difficult to give and but was absolutely vital. And I'm gonna let Luke take over and tell you a little bit more about that.
3: Yeah, I think um just to just to add to that, I think someone asked me once how would how would you describe it? And I kind of gave two examples from the Worcester and Worcester situation, and the Was situation, a bit of a you know, I suppose a dark one, but you think of a an elderly grandparent who is possibly you know getting on a bit, he's had a few 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 illnesses. Um, and this is the Worcester situation. It kind of You kind of knew it was happening. You kind of just weren't sure exactly when. And, and when that kind of day did come on, on the 5th of October, which obviously we were aware of, but there was always kind of hope that things would be rectified and sorted but, You know, ahead of that. Um, it was still, you know, you, you were kind of, you'd expected it to happen, but it still hit you just, just as hard. And I'm talking about my perspective now as well as, as the players having, you know, having worked very closely with them and supported them. And in the WASP situation, that happened, obviously, almost simultaneously. It was like having an elderly grandparent who kind of had a bit of a cold. That very quickly turned into pneumonia and bam, you know, there was kind of very the very sudden nature of it. You know, we're talking about 116 players here. We're also talking about hundreds and hundreds of staff that lost their job. And importantly, we're also talking about thousands of people, thousands of supporters who use rugby in those two particular clubs. Is their outlet is there? You know, as is, is one of the, you know, the, and you've seen the outpouring of support for, you know, for players and, and for clubs, which is absolutely magnificent as well. But we can't lose sight of the fact that this has been a hugely, a hugely important time for for many, you know, many thousand people who you know, pour their hearts and souls and, and well earned money into into those two clubs, particularly. It's a, it's a sport that we all love and sport that we all enjoy, and and, and many fans of those two clubs have had that taken away from them in the last few the last few months. But yeah, very tough. It was, you know, I think there's, there's been lots spoken about, and lots of the players have, have spoken about their experiences, which is hugely important because we have to remember the the human level of, of of the effect of of these two situations. Not 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 least from a from a playing and a job point of view, but you know, people's families, kids, players who have travelled over from various parts of the world to apply their trade in you know what we believe to be the best league in the world. Um, and for this to happen is 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 truly you know it's heartbreaking for a lot of these people and, and how that's going to affect them from a financial standpoint from a living basis point of view you know we've got kind of forty of the players those hundred and sixteen players are now applying their trade in some form overseas forty is a is a, it's a massive massive number of of people who have who, who lives have changed quite significantly and a big proportion of those forty players have kids you now have partners have families and so it's not straightforward so it's it's maybe um and that's something that maybe I think people tend to not necessarily understand too much. They'll look a lot of the rugby, it's it's, it's cruel, it's this, that, and the other, but this is this is people's lives. These are, are young kids that are having to be pulled out of school and then moved to a different country. Um and again, in many ways, on short term contracts that might elapse. Possibly sooner in June, but at least at least at least at June. There's lots of change for for these people. You know, we've seen a lot of a lot of players that are having uh, the opportunities in the Premiership. We know aren't aren't necessarily there due to salary cap, but also budgets. So these players are now having to having to find other opportunities. Most of the time, for for less money than what they were they were earning initially. And again, you know, there'll be people, there'll be cynical people out there going, "Well, they were earning a hell of a lot of money anyway." Well, some of them actually, a lot of them weren't earning ridiculous money. And, and even still, that's if that's what you're used to earning. I think if if I was to lose my job overnight and then had to significantly change where I was living, uh, and how much I was earning to support my family, it would have a massive impact on on not only me but my wife, my children. So, you know, we we can't lose sight of the of the human the kind of the the human nature of, of the human level. Sorry, of the, the impact that this has had. But, you know, look, thankfully, we're in a position now where we've got, you know, the majority of players have got some form of playing contracts. Um, again, they they will differ in terms of their length or where indeed they are. Um, it's certainly a life experience that none of the players would choose chosen to have happened. But I'm sure, you know, on reflection, even, you know, even now, kind of three or so months later, we'll look back and, and say that it's been, a, been an important time and they've learned a lot from it. Uh, as well. But yeah, as Christy said, you know, it's just so crucial that this absolutely cannot happen again within within professional rugby. Um, you know, you look at the, the thousands of thousands of people, you look at the, the model of um you know the, the product on the pitch and how how spectacular it is. You look at the you know the England games, you know, where you know nearly a hundred thousand people turn out for, for these games in the Six Nations, they're they're absolutely amazing spectacles, you know, and supported by millions of people. We just can't allow it to happen again on, on, a, on a human level really. But yeah, look, things, things are hopefully looking 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 uh, looking up, particularly for those two clubs. And we hope to see them back in some form next season. There's we'll still allow a lot to, lot to be done, a lot of uh, hurdles to jump and things to jump through in order to, to make that happen. But um, yeah, things are looking relatively positive, we hope.
0: Just in terms of the, the tangible things that were done, the, the, the kind of the redundancy process is a very complex one. The players were all given legal support around that. That's still going on now in terms of being rugby creditors and things like that, trying to make sure that they can they can get their their fair share of money back if possible. So players are still navigating through that now. Um, we actually brought forward an initiative that was supposed to launch this year, which was a free agents list for players. It's something we're going to do going forwards because I'm not going to celebrate it, but it was actually quite successful. I think we had about 70 players put their names on the free agents list that went out to Um, all heads of recruitment in the Premiership in Scotland, Wales, France. And we saw quite a large proportion of those players picked up off the list. So that was something we'll look to do going forwards and continue doing. And more than anything else, you know, I mentioned that each club has a development manager. I think we actually assigned three development managers to those two clubs at that point in time, purely to check in regularly with the players, ask what their circumstances were, ask if there was anything we could facilitate. You know, one group that were potentially forgotten about were the academy players where we managed to um, speak with Premiership Rugby and the RFU and make sure that any compensation payments for the league were waived to make sure that those players were employable as possible and could move to other clubs immediately. And as a result, we saw practically every single academy player picked up almost instantly. That, That player pathway now, you know, Luke and I both sit on a development group which looks at player pathways. The route to professionalism for players in that area has now been, you know, challenged, and the RFU have stepped in. We have two RFU academies now, like we do in Yorkshire, but we've got to make sure that pathway is reignited and make sure that that the, you know, the really elite young players start a pathway to professionalism. So it goes far, far beyond, you know, Worcester Worcester going out of business, and we hope they come back. There's, there's so many levels of support that, that are needed to try and minimise this this turmoil that's been created.
3: I think just on top of that, Oliver, sorry, just, just, I think because Christian won't do it. So I will. The free agents list was something that, that Christian was, was trying to implement, as he said, for, for for this season, just due to the nature of the, the number of players that kind of leave contracts to, to our membership. And that was a, it was a hugely successful process that, that Christian drove. I think it would also be really, really important, as Christian's touched upon, to to talk about the, you know, the wider kind of Development Managers gainline Line programme, but also specifically to name Mark, Lam- Mark Lambert, the head of rugby policy at the at R- the RPA, who was he was huge, has been huge throughout the whole process. And importantly, Rich Bryan, the player welfare director of the RPA from a legal standpoint, um, particularly works night and day. And when I say night and day, I'm, I seriously mean night and day at times. Uh, you get an email from him in the, uh, the depths of the morning, you think, I on a minute, what's going on here, Rich, you need to get a bit of sleep. But um, yeah, I think that it's been a it's been a huge effort from from everybody, particularly in, in our space. Um, and and never has there been possibly a more important time for players to be well represented and well supported as, as what this one has been. And yeah, I'm really, really proud of, of, of the impact and the work that we as an organization have done for our players over the course of the last few
1: months. I've just got one more question on this, and again, this is to both of you, but in terms of juggling pro action versus reaction, you said that, you know, you Luke, you said you knew Worcester was gonna happen and you didn't really know when. Was it a case of laying the groundwork to be able to best support? And then in what ways did you have to react? Yeah, what were the most sort of unexpected ways of support that the RPA had to
3: provide? From a Worcester point of view, I think it wasn't necessarily knowing it was going to happen, but you were aware of the the winding up petition that was in place. And, you know, there was always very much a a huge hope that it would never get to that. But you kind of always had that kind of, that that date in your diaries, if it isn't sorted by then, then this will happen. So, but you kind of then, Try, trying to strike a balance, particularly with players, between being realistic and optimistic. You never want to try and downplay the optimism that, that players will have, but at the same time, you know, like like any like any any sort of situation with any sort of player, we hope that all of the players go into this weekend's fixtures and come out healthily off the back of it. But we always know there's a risk that a player may be injured to the point whereby they can't play again. So it, it's always a balance between being proactive and reactive, and, and it's just, no matter how proactive and prepared you can be for eventuality. You're never fully prepared. I think it's important that we, we try and strike that balance. But I think, Kristen, i just jumped in and on, on you were going to say something. So,
0: Well, I was just going to say that some of this is what's going to come out of the DCMS report in terms of the protections that are in place. You know, the, the owner's test, first and foremost, um, for Worcester. We knew that wages had been paid late, like two months in a row. So we knew that that was happening, but we also knew that those wages were subsequently paid. So it, it wasn't like all the alarm bells were going off, but we certainly had an inkling that, that things weren't quite right. But what we would say going forwards is that, again, PRL have indicated that they're going to have more financial transparency, which I think is crucial that, that at the start of the season, they do the same thing in France, that clubs lay out what their plan is. And, and therefore, you know, everyone knows and, what one line that stood out for me in the DCMS report is yes, each of the clubs are independent and independently run, but there has to be some collective responsibility from both the league and the union that that we we look after them as a as a unit, as a league, as a whole. So and I would apply not just to finance, I'd apply the player welfare to that as well. You know, we 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 want every club to be individual and do its own things. I've already name-checked Alex Anderson, who has a big mental health passionate at sale and, and he does things differently to Newcastle. But at the same time, we have to have a collective responsibility across the league if we're going to say that the you know we want the best league in the world and we want what player welfare to be the number one priority. There has to be that collective responsibility.
1: For time, we're going to have to move on. But yeah, huge credit to the RPA for being able to support players through what has been a really, really difficult time. And like you guys both say, it cannot be allowed to happen again. Brendan, I'm going to hand over to you, because I know you had a question about the championship.
2: Yeah, just a little bit of a googly, possibly. Um, and I feel a bit of a cad having listened to your fantastic efforts uh, on behalf of Worcester. Um, it's always struck me a little bit odd that there doesn't seem to be a connection with the championship, given how many professional players there are in there. I mean, probably five, if not six of the 12 clubs are fully pro. The rest are part-time, Richmond are amateur. Um and they're quite, you know, vulnerable professional rugby players. So there certainly doesn't seem to be any representation on the players' board, and you don't seem to have any dedicated officers for the championship. And I'm not even aware if, if championship professionals are allowed to join you. So I don't know if you can comment on that, and, and if there's any connection with the championship.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to comment. Um, you know, this, this is this is on my plate now. I'm I'm now in charge of talking about this and 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 how will the association grow over time. What all I would say is then that for that to happen, there would need to be an appetite from the championship. And we're we're seeing that, that Premiership Rugby are talking about the funding of the championship and how do we make that second division or second tier um more equitable to the premiership. A big stumbling block at the moment would be that in the premiership we have a standard contract that every player signs and and there's a unity there, as I said, a collective responsibility of how we treat players. The Championship doesn't have that, uh, and that produces difficulties in terms of representing a collective, which is ultimately what we represent. All I would say is that, that my, personally for me, I've got a real passion for the women's game. We represent the Red Roses. We want to make sure that, that uh, Premier 15's cohort of players will be represented correctly going forwards. And I see no reason why we wouldn't also look to the championship and look at ways of representing them, but we would need some steps to be taken by the rest of the game to facilitate that.
2: Yeah.
0: A strong funding model for the championship. And we would need desire from the championship clubs and their players to to want that representation and to to match up to some of the demands, demands, you know, some of the norms that we have in the premiership, for instance.
2: I notice you do have a, a second tier sort of membership of £130 a year for those earning less than 30000 presumably younger academy players, 1st tier pros. Is, a, is that not an area you can move into? And uh, Maybe championship players are allowed to be like associate members or at least enjoy some of the overall protection that you as the trade union of professional rugby players does provide. That's an initiative that we're actually working on right now. So that's...
0: Yes certainly as, as almost like a parachute for players who drop out of the Premiership and into the Championship. As I said, going forwards, I think I think the, ne- the next 18 months will re-examine Rugby Union in this country and we will come out of the next 18 months with with something a little bit different, I think. And I'm certainly open to looking at the Championship as, as a group of players that I'd love to represent. But like I said, it's, it's a collective responsibility. Me saying you're an RPA member now will not solve all the problems that those players have. We need uh we need a collective effort. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's fair enough.
1: Perfect timing that I think I think we'll wrap up now, Christian. I know you have to go to a Red Roses meeting. So, Christian and Luke, I want to say a huge, huge thank you um, for joining us today. And yeah, huge credit to you both for providing the support to players which is more necessary than ever. So here's to, you know, many more years of the RPA's fantastic work.
0: Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Brendan. Cheers, guys, get
1: going. As always, get a copy of the Rugby Paper available in stores on Sundays or have it delivered to you through our digital subscription. Next week is a don't miss as we commemorate episode 50 and exactly a year of the Rugby Paper podcast. We preview one of the biggest and most exciting Six Nations tournaments in recent memory, and joining our full house of columnists is the first ever special guest on the Rugby Paper podcast, former British and Irish line Jerry Guscott.